I feel like I should give this qualifier here. Um, as a church, what we do, if, if you're new here uh, and, and this is maybe your first service with, with Gospel Church, uh, you might not know this, but as a church, we walk through books of the Bible as our standard of what, of what we do when we, when we do our preaching, when we, when we seek to know what God's counsel is for us. We look to his word, and, and at the moment, we're walking through a series in the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, and, and this week, we're up to this curveball of a passage. Uh, and you might have walked just in here the first time today and be like, oh, righto, that sort of church. And... Um, and I, I suppose I want to qualify, we are that sort of church. Uh, we are a church that holds in deep respect and awe the wonder of the fact that God gave us a book, that God's written his wisdom down for us. Uh, whilst at the same time, this is probably one of those passages that we're used to looking at, actually, that many of us are used to not looking at. Uh, <laughs> you know, we kind of get to it and we go, okay. I wonder what the next bit of 1 Corinthians 11 is about, because that might be easier. And, uh, and, and we kind of move on, and we might even think to ourselves, you know, have that kind of uneasiness of feeling, maybe I'm living in disobedience to Scripture here, because, I mean, look around you. Um, not many people are wearing a head covering. Um, not many of our, our women, and you might read this and go, well, doesn't that mean that we all should do that? Um, now, I've, I've done something very unusual here, which is I've gone straight off the reservation, straight at the beginning of my sermon here, not talking about what I had here, but I just wanted to give that qualifier. And I want you to know, actually, that this part of the Bible does speak powerfully to us, but maybe not in the ways that we think. Uh, this, this section of the, of the book of Corinthians... Now, let me step back from talking about this little section of it. We're actually, this week, we're moving into a new part of the book. Um, that, that starts here in chapter 11 and goes all the way through to the end of chapter 14, uh, where there's a whole bunch of different situations and issues that Paul's going to address, and, and what they have in common is that they're talking to the gathered life of the church. They're talking to the body of Christ as we are when we do this, when we get together as a people. And this is, this is actually one of the things I love about 1 Corinthians. This is one of the things that really commends this book to us, is that it gives us more insight because, because of the, the rotten situations that were happening in their church and the fact that Paul had to address them. It gives us more insight into what does it look like when God's people gather than any other book of the New Testament. It speaks to that so much more than anywhere else we find. Uh, but the first of these situations it has to do with how people were dressing as they come to church. Uh, it's, it's probably amongst the most difficult passages in the New Testament to in, interpret. Um, and, and, you know, it speaks to these issues of, of men who were wearing head coverings, women who weren't wearing head coverings. And we kind of hear that and we go, that seems a bit irregular, perhaps. <laughs> a, bit, a bit unusual in our day. And as a result, people kind of tend to fall off two ends of a spectrum here, um, or two ends of the cart. The spectrum was better. You can't fall off two ends of a cart. Well, it doesn't go well on the other end anyway. But um, either we throw up our hands in the air and we go, well, this, just, this is just too weird. This is too outlandish. This doesn't apply to me. Move on. Or we say, this applies word for word for us, to us today. And so women have to wear head coverings in church. And, and you know, God forbid that a man should wear a hat in church. Uh, and, and the problem is that neither of those approaches actually takes into account how 1 Corinthians works as a book. 
Uh, we've been saying from the start that this is a situational letter, like none other in the New Testament. It is very intensely situational. It's written to a church facing very specific challenges and situations, uh, so much more, actually, than we find anywhere else in the New Testament. And so it's important, more than anywhere else in the New Testament, probably, that we see that there are specific localised situations um, relevant in their particular moment in time that are driving the direction of the text. More often than not, in fact, for almost all of this letter, Paul is either responding to something that they've said or he's responding to something he's heard about them, about specific situations in their context. And, and many of these situations are very different to our situation today. But the fact that their situation is different to ours doesn't mean that the letter just doesn't speak to us. I mean, clearly we don't think that. Otherwise, goodness, what are we doing here? Uh, because, and, and it doesn't mean that because into these specific situations, Paul speaks timeless gospel principles. And those principles will always apply to the people of God, no matter what age we're talking in. And so although our situation may differ from their situation, and so our application may look different to how their application looked, nevertheless, there is concrete application for us here in the book of 1 Corinthians because of these gospel principles which drive the way that Paul responds to these situations. So, I mean, I hope that that all felt a little bit familiar if you've been with us for a while. You know, the, the whole situation, gospel, gospel principle, application, structure is what drives this book along. We see it throughout the book. And, and the reason that I'm kind of rehashing, rehammering that today is that uh, we, we've come to this part of the book which is very, very foreign to us. And you can't get what this passage is saying, I believe, uh, unless you understand the situation that it's said in two. And that's, that's unusual in the New Testament. Most of the New Testament you can read, in fact, almost all of the New Testament you can read, and you can take the main point of it out very clearly without understanding the cultural situation of the people that it was written to. And this is, this is one exception to that rule. So we're going to what we're going to do today is a bit unusual. We're going, to, we're going to take a sec to catch up on the basics of first century Corinth culture. Woo! Like, like is anyone excited? Come on. Uh, and this is, it, it's going to be a moderate oversimplification, be comforted. Um, but, but this is just so that we can get to that point of understanding what are these principles that, God's, that, that Paul's speaking in and how did they apply to them before we realise how they apply to us. So in ancient Corinth, you had significance to, to head coverings. Uh, and, and, and some of that significance is significance that we would say is not relevant in Australia today. And some of that significance is significance that you'd say is just not existent in the world today. Um, uh, and, 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 and none of it, noteworthily, is practiced on the York Peninsula today. Um, this, it's it's very, all very foreign to us culturally. And Paul speaks separately to men wearing head coverings and to women wearing head coverings, and he treats them differently. And the significance for men is basically something we don't see at all today. Uh, look, and I was chatting to Crystal, my wife, about this, and, and she was like, are you sure there isn't some tribe somewhere in the world that still practices this? And I was like, well, no, I'm not 100%. But if you know of one, let me know afterwards, or just, just, just leave me be, either way. 
But there is a, a wealth of ancient evidence for the fact that in pagan worship rituals in, in the city of Corinth and across the Roman Empire, you had this thing where men would, would lift the flap of their toga. I'm not going to do it with my flanny, it would be weird. Um, they'd lift the flap of their toga over their head uh, as like a, a kind of a shawl head covering during pagan worship ritual. And that they would do this as a, as a, as a significant thing, as a, as a sign of who they were, and we'll talk about that. Um, but there are, there are loads of ancient examples of this. This isn't something that someone scratched out one picture on a wall somewhere. There's like hundreds of statues, of pictures. We even have actually like perfectly preserved statues of emperors of the Roman Empire doing this. Uh, and this, this is what's significant here. Not all men did it. It was the leading men who did that in pagan worship. They would signify their status by putting the toga over their head. And, and so, you know, that's why you have emperors pictured doing it, right? And that's why you don't have slaves pictured doing it, because it was the leading men. So when pagan worship rituals were happening, the priests, the, the high priests would put the, the cloth over their head and the, the, the leading men of the town would put that over their head. But the others wouldn't be allowed to do that because it was a status symbol. And, and, and that's important. It was a thing that declared this person has an elevated status. And that, that feels foreign because it is foreign to us. Uh, and, but that's just how it was. And we have to get ahead around that. Other than that, uh, men didn't wear head coverings in, in the culture of the day. That was, that was an extremely unusual thing. So when Paul talks about a man praying or prophesying with his head covered, that's what's going on here, do you see? Some men in the church were covering their heads as they came to pray and to prophesy. And so there's kind of two levels at which there's an issue there, right? Because they were bringing in the pagan worship practices of the world into the church of God. Probably more significantly, though, they were attempting to place themselves on a pedestal in the way that the pagan culture did for their people. They were taking a status symbol saying, I'm a leading person here. I am more significant than others here. Uh, and, and putting themselves up above their fellow believers, do you see? Now, the significance for women, are we, are we tracking with me here? Because this, I realise this is a little bit more technical than we usually like to go. The significance for women is something that still exists in huge parts of the world today, just not this part of the world today. For a woman in ancient Corinth, a head covering, uh, a shawl over the head signified marriage signified that she was a, a respectable married woman. And, and, the different, uh, and that differentiated her in the day from slave women, from concubines, and from prostitutes, primarily. Um, now, now, you might remember back in 1 Corinthians 7, if you've been with us, when we looked at marriage and sexuality, uh, that the norm in their culture uh, back then was that a man would be promiscuous, a husband kind of, his, he was expected, in fact, it was written into standardised wedding speeches that he would go and sleep with other people, but that the wife, she would be faithful to her husband. Uh, and, and we've already established, you know, Paul outright rejects that. Um, he, he instead establishes that marriage is between a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others. 
uh, with, with fidelity and responsibility to one another. But, but in the first century, something was happening in culture which on the outside might look foreign to us because of all the whole head covering stuff, but on the inside it's actually really familiar today, which is that, that what, what they tend to call the new woman was arising. Uh, a woman who rebelled against social norms, uh, provocatively flaunting herself, and typically how that looked in first, first century Corinth was to unveil her head even though she was a married woman. It was a symbol of rebellion against her husband and her gender. If we said it today, we'd say it was a symbol of rebellion against the patriarchy, wouldn't we? Uh, and, and let's just say, you know, all other things aside, in a culture where husbands were basically given a free pass to do whatever on earth they wanted to do and wives were the possession of their husband uh, and, and basically had to do whatever the husband told them to do. I'm not condoning that, but, but you can kind of see how they got there, right? Like in the face of that kind of inequality um, where, where the men are just kind of hall pass from whatever, uh, you can see how women were like, hang on a minute, that doesn't seem quite right. Uh, but but, and I'm not condoning that, I'm not saying that's the right way to go, I'm saying both of them were going off of the deep end now. But when Paul talks about women uncovering their heads in church, this is the context. The wives were rebelling against the created order of the marriage relationship and of gender. And like, when you say it like that, doesn't that seem awfully kind of 2022? Like, <laughs> isn't that really popular in our culture today? Likewise, um, when, when he says that uh, they may as well cut off their hair if they're going to do this, you know, we go, what's that all about? And, and it's because that was, a, that was a, a punishment for adultery in the day, was a woman would have her head shaved. And so he's saying, you know, if you're going to do this thing and rebel against God's shape of marriage, may as well go the whole way and just shear the lot off. Paul's not exactly politically correct most of the time. If you haven't run into him before, that's, this, is, this, is, this is your first experience. This might be a rough one. Um, and so Paul looks at this situation, though, of, of men covering their heads and of, uh, as, a, as a status symbol and of women uncovering their heads in rebellion against marriage and gender and, and this very culturally specific situation to then, and he speaks to it with a timeless principle. He says, the head of the man is Christ. And the head of the woman is man. Sorry, the head of a man is Christ. The head of the wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. What he's, what he's doing, and he, he does it throughout this passage. We're not going to look at every single instance of it right now. But if you want to talk about that, feel free to come to me afterwards. But he's taking a principle. He's taking an order that was, has existed from creation. And he's going to root that in creation. And he's applying it to this situation. And the point of this headship language that he uses is that the head is the one who is honoured or dishonoured by the actions of the other. So when the husband is the head of the wife, he, in that way, he's going to be dishonoured in God's relational structure that he's established from creation. He's the one who's dishonoured when she uncovers her head. And, and, and so forth. We, we'll get into that. But you know, there, there, there is that sense of authority in it, but primarily it's this honour and shame thing that we don't tend to get very much. And it, his point is that you're, if you're a saved person, then you won't push against the creational purposes of God. But you will see yourself located within them. 
You'll understand yourself in them. You won't dishonour your head. You'll honour your head. So if the head of the man is Christ, then he dishonours Christ when he covers his head. So do you get, there's a, there's a metaphorical head in that sentence and a literal head. It's, it's a little bit confusing. Paul does it on purpose. It's a wordplay. But why is that dishonouring to Christ? Well, because he's puffing himself up when he does that. He's holding himself up high. He's pushing his own status rather than glorifying Christ. Isn't this something we kind of keep seeing in Corinth? That, that pride was this big issue there. Isn't it something we see, still see a lot of today? That pride is the issue driving the problems in the church. Pride is the underlying issue and the gospel calls us out of pride and into humility. It's contrary to the gospel of the Saviour who humbled himself for us, who lowered himself for us, even to the point of death on a cross. It contradicts that if then we, when we gather, we're attempting to puff ourselves up, to claim status for ourselves over top of one another. Not only that, if we seek to be glorified for our status today, then we deny the reality of the glorified status that we do actually have, do you see? We, we have a glorified status and it has nothing to do with head coverings. It has nothing to do with what you wear or with what you drive or the house that you live in. It has to do with the fact that when the God of the universe looks on you, if you've trusted in Jesus, he says, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased because of the goodness of Christ. That's our status, children of God. And when we try to cling to some other status and elevate ourselves above one another, rather than embracing the equality of salvation there, then, then we deny that, do you see? So what about the women? Well, well it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? When, when these women would use this cultural symbol of rebellion against marriage and against gender, uncovering their heads, they dishonoured not just the husband who was the head of the marriage, but the God who had established the order of marriage in creation. Something he, he builds right back in Genesis chapter, chapter 2. And it denies the, the order of gender that he establishes in, in Genesis chapter 1. Now, at that point, we're kind of... We've, we've exegeted, we've, we've, we've pulled apart the text, and we've seen how it speaks to them, right? And, uh, and you know, it, it's been a little bit of a slog, but we got there. Well done. Pat on the back, everyone. Um, uh, but, but what we haven't seen is really how this specifically speaks to us. And we're going to get that. I want to chuck in one little curveball here, um, because I know that someone's going to say, John, you didn't mention it afterwards. Uh, you know, there'll probably be another four people who say, why did you mention that? But... Um, he says there, a woman should have a sign of authority on her head because of the angels. Um, and someone is dying to know the answer of what on earth he's talking about there. And, and I just want to chuck a little comment in there and say, I'm not sure. <laughs> Let me give you two possibilities. One is that angels can be translated as the messengers. And he's talking about outside people who come into the church as messengers. And he wants them to be a good witness to those people. The other possibility, and I think this is the likely one, um, but I want to hold this lightly, although it is a beautiful thing. I think probably Paul's pointing them towards this amazing truth that we see across the New Testament, 
when God's people gather, we're taking a part in the worship of heaven. We are taking part in something that is eternal, and we are a witness not just to one another, not just to the world, but to heavenly beings in the way that we do that. And so he says she should have a, a sign of authority. That is, you know, she should wear the shawl because that is the thing that signifies her sitting within, joyfully within the order of creation that God has set up as a testament, not just to those around her, but to the heavenly beings we are participating in worship with. And because he's Paul, he just drops it and moves on, you know, and he can do that. He's allowed to do that. It's an apostolic thing. I'm not allowed to do that. But now, you know, we've done our pull apart. Right? We're ready to see, does this, does this speak to us? And if it does speak to us, how does it speak to the us? Um, how, do, how on York Peninsula in 2022 do we get at this? And, and I want to just ask two double-sided questions to, to help us get there. First, what are the status symbols that we tend to take in the church today? And how can we practice the equality, the radical equality of the gospel, of status in the gospel that we have in Christ? What are the status symbols that we take today? How can we radically kick against that and be a culture of people whose status is equal in the gospel? I, to be honest, I thought about this a lot this week. And, and clearly, clearly, okay, the clear thing is that this isn't about whether or not you wear a hat in church anymore, right? Like that is not a status symbol. Um, we've, we've got a fella, Matt Anderson, who, who comes wearing a hat pretty often, and I don't think anyone looks at Matt and thinks, you know, some people might look at Matt and go, oh, that seems disrespectful, but no one looks at Matt and goes, well, he's just trying to say that he's better than me. Like, like that's just not a thing. Um, particularly if it's like an MXPX hat or something, because that's Matt. But, um, but, and I'm just saying, you know, you, you can't argue that from this part of the Bible. It's, it's not here. Um, at, but honestly, as I consider this, I think there's actually some real cause for encouragement here for Gospel Church, um, especially when it comes to these status symbols. Um, yeah, I look around us as a church, and, and like I've been in a number of churches in my life. A lot of have been in a number of churches in our lives, and we've experienced different things here. And, and what I see here is that we have differing roles, we have differing giftings, and that's a beautiful, that's a godly thing, that's a thing that the Bible affirms as a God-given thing. But I don't tend to see a lot of pretense and kind of grabbing at status at Gospel Church. It, it, uh, it doesn't seem to be a part of our culture. I love that about our church. Um, if, if someone came in holding their head high with their status, with pride, I don't think they'd comfortably find a place here um, because it would stand out like a sore thumb. Uh, that's, that's a good culture in this church. I love that. Uh, I love that... that in the people that God has built here, that's a thing about us. There is very little pretense in what I see here. Um, although, you know, God help us not to be proud about our lack of proud pretense. Like, that, there's, a, there's, a, there's a jetty to fall off of there. But, you know, to, and, and, you know, to say that we don't have this particular issue of the status symbols doesn't mean that there isn't pride, that we don't have pride issues. Pride issues happen in every church. Um, we, need to, we need to watch for our blind spots here, 
But, but here's the thing. When we're talking about these status symbols and people elevating themselves above others, um, right now and historically, that's actually, um, to have a culture in a church where that's not normal is, is abnormal historically and in the church today. I mean, historically, haven't we seen this go in mad directions? Uh, if you don't know a little bit of ch church history, then, then let, me, let me just help you out here. Like, how many you, you, you'd know this. Like, you've ever been into a big church and noticed how many brass plaques there are from people who gave the right amount of money and therefore get their name on something? How, how does that fit with this? You know, how, many, how many churches had the elevated status symbol that if you gave enough, you could get, like, like back in the day, you could get a family robe. It was in the good spots. You got the good seats and you had a chain and you had a key and you could unlock the, the chain or the gate so that only you could use your row unless someone was capable of doing this. Um, and, and so, you know, it was, it was wow, those, those are, those are the, the elevated people because they've got the good row, right? Um, how much have we seen this historically? And this just continues today in the status symbol of robes and hats. I... I'm yet to get my head around robes and hats, I'm going to be honest. Um, who was it that sat down one day and said, you know what, you know what we need to reflect the humility and beauty of the Saviour Jesus Christ to the world and to one another? Gold robes. That's what we need. And a hat that's like five times taller than your head. That'll show them. Like, like I don't know. Uh, uh, you know. But what I want to say here is a word of caution. And I want to say this especially to our younger people who may one day grow up and move away from here and go looking for their first church away from home. And like, I, I pray that they do. I pray that they go and I pray that they engage with the church family. But be careful of this. You know, it, not just to them. Anyone who might move away. You might retire and move away. You might have any number of reasons to go somewhere. Or just, you might just decide, gospel church isn't the church for me. Go to another church. Be careful of this. Because it's still a very strong thing today. It's not just historical. It, it is a significant sign of unhealthiness in a church if some are elevated over others in status, especially if that's a thing that's encouraged by the system of that church. You know, probably the most common way that we see this work out is when churches expect, expect a high dress code at church. Um, you know, whether that's a written dress code or just an assumed dress code that puts you on the outer if you don't dress like everyone else. But isn't that so common in the church today? And, and I know a lot of people will say that, you, you know, you should give your best for Jesus in the way that you dress. And, and like, to some extent, I'd agree. But, but I would just argue that your best, biblically, is more about whether you can practice humility than whether you can dress up. It's more about lowering yourself than elevating yourself. Um, and, and like even in a church where people might do that from a good desire, where people might suit and tie up or, or, or like do the extreme hipster outfit, you can do either way, they're both dressing up as a dress code. Um, and and, and be, out of that argument of I want to give my best to Jesus and the heart might be good there, but even then, functionally, this operates in a way that, that distances a person who maybe just can't afford to go there. Or maybe, you know, for whatever reason, can't dress up like you dress up. It, it distances the lower person and the more humble person. And I think that we can see how opposed that is to the heart of Jesus, can't we? 
who comes to seek and to save the lost. You know, that's, that's quite intentionally why you'll see me preach here in a hoodie as often as you'll see me in a button-up shirt. I was wearing a hoodie earlier today, actually. I took it off. It was warm in here. Um, praise God for heaters. Yeah, but status symbols don't end there. I mean, this is something, and like, look, there's an endless list of, of examples you can give to this. One of the more extreme ones I found, you know, and there, this is a thing. There are churches in Adelaide, um, there are churches globally that have, have structured things they call giving tiers or giving levels, where, where, you know, what that means is if you give enough, if you give the right amount to the church, you get special privileges. You might, you get a title or you get a gift or, you know, for instance, you might, and this is, this is one I've run into, you might give $2,500 a month above your tithe because that's, that's always written into it. And, and so you get a gift from the church annually and you get, you get a title. You're a, you're a visionary partner. Or you might, you might go all out and you might give $10,000 a month and get the title of Kingdom Builder. It's a cool title though, isn't it? Um, and, and you get a, a special conference once a year that's run for people like you who gave, who gave the big bucks, uh, where, the, at, at, where, the, where the leadership of that church will, will ask you for your blessing on their financial plans because you give more, you get more say. You get special access to the leaders of the church. Now, I'm not making that up. That's a real thing in real churches. Can we see how contrary it is to the, to the culture of the kingdom of God? To the saviour who, who looks at the poor widow taking her offering of two copper pennies to the, to the temple and says, surely she gave more than all of them because she gave out of her poverty. Just watch for this, okay? And watch for this here. You know, we're a relatively young church. We've been around three and a half years. It's easy for a church to wander. It's, it's, it's easy to drift into status symbols. It's easy to drift into pride. So watch for it here and be ready to call it out. Now what about that second section? Uh, and the second question here is, how might we tend to deny the nature of marriage and of gender in our culture today? And, and how can we be radically countercultural by affirming God's creational order there? Isn't that a pressure point today? Don't, don't we live in a day when denying the creational order of both marriage and gender are pushed to a large extent as the new standard of, of goodness, of morality? Church, we have to be ready to be different here. Just like the early church had to be ready to stick out like a sore thumb for the way that they lived, we have to be ready to stick out like a sore thumb for the way that we live. And clearly that, clearly that isn't achieved today by covering your head, ladies. Congratulations, Ed. If, if, if you're hanging, still wondering whether that's how that works today, it's not how that works today. Because that's not how we affirm God's created order of marriage and gender today. There, there are ways to do it today, but you don't achieve the intention of this text and of the God who inspired it if, if you cover your head today. In some countries you might, I, I should qualify that. There are some parts of the world where absolutely you might have to. In some parts of Australia, you know, it's become, becoming the case that expecting non, men not to dress in women's clothing and to wear makeup is, is a countercultural way of affirming God's structure here, God's 
order. Maybe not really on SYP yet. I think that one way that we can be really countercultural here is through our attitudes and through our words. You know, I'm sure there's, there's dress stuff, we can talk about that at some point, but let me ask you, how common is it today for a wife to complain about her husband? Like, like, right? Right? Like, <laughs> when he's not there, or even when he is there, you know? It's, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a cultural norm in Australia that we complain about each other. Vice versa, how commonplace is it for a husband to, to whinge about his wife? When we do that, we don't just put down our spouse. We put down the God who created the order of marriage. You know, things like you only get 20 for life. Has anyone heard that? Like, like on a 20th anniversary, and people chuck in that in a little bit of a joking, but a little bit of a serious way, that you only get 20 years for life, and, and look, you, you've got more through marriage. How terrible is that? How... Honestly, how rebellious against the God who made this to be a good thing. Really? Now, don't hear me wrong here. I'm not saying, hey, you need to hold up your marriage as perfect and pretend that it's okay all of the time and never tell anyone if you're having troubles. That's, like, like, that's different to whinging, can we see that? Like, if, if you have difficulties, I mean, everyone has difficulties in their marriage, newsflash. And, and talk about that with one another and appropriately with people who can actually help you with that, preferably together. But how radically countercultural would it be today, in our day, if Christian wives were more ready to rejoice in what their husband does well, in the good aspects of him? Not to, not to hold him up as perfect, not to say, hey, look at my husband, he's better than yours, but to be affirming of him to the greatest extent that she can. You know, to rejoice that God has given him to her as head in the marriage and to rejoice and to encourage when he does well, ultimately because you want to honour the God who made marriage. How, how radically countercultural would it look how mind-blowing would it be if husbands spoke well of their wives? If they were so much more ready to show their adoration than to joke about a ball and chain? If the, if, if the comment wasn't, I've got the old ball and chain, but I put a chain on and I threw away the key. How powerfully does it show a dissatisfied world that Jesus is better when we rejoice to be a part of what Jesus has made. When we humble ourselves under the headship of God and we don't try to elevate ourselves. When men, women, husbands, wives reflect the truth that we are children, equal under our creator God, our father God. That reveals the countercultural beauty of the gospel as we become who we are in Christ. Would, would you pray with me about that? Because heaven knows we need it, so do I. <coughs> Jesus, um, we thank you that your gospel calls us in deeper. That the good news of who you are calls us to be who we are in you. 
Lord, I thank you as I look around this church. I thank you that you haven't made us a puffed up people. I thank you, Lord, for the little ways that that's almost been made required, just been made standard from the duct taping down of our carpets to the ways that we dress. I pray, Lord, that you wouldn't let us be a proud people in our hearts, that we wouldn't strive for our own status, but that we would glory in the wonderful joy of our Saviour, in the glory of our God, and that we would rejoice in the status that we have in you and nothing else. But I pray that you give us wisdom in this, that you'd be ever defeating our pride and revealing our blind spots in that. I pray, Lord, that you give us wisdom in affirming your creational order, that you made marriage, that you made gender, and you made them as a thing to reflect the beauty of you. I pray that you would give us wisdom in doing that and that we would do it in a way that honours Christ. Lord, make us a missional people, a people whose lives are so radically countercultural, so radically gospel-shaped that the world can't help but ask what's different about these guys. Lord, help us to embrace the joy of knowing you more and more and to walk in that joy. Amen. Thanks, guys.